What's up, everybody? This is Eve with the Healthy Charleston Podcast. For those of you who don't know, I'm a physical therapist, and this podcast is dedicated to giving you the right health and fitness information that is both practical, actionable, and evidence-based. This is season two of the podcast, and we are so excited. We're going to have a little less interviewing. We're going to do some more topic-based discussions with myself and some of the Made to Move physical therapy and performance team. Maybe have some guest hosts out there. We are so excited for season two. Thank you so much for joining us and supporting us. If you have any questions for me or the crew, just search Healthy Charleston on Instagram or you can reach out to us directly at made to move pt.com that is the number two thanks so much see you soon hey guys nate here with made to move pt um we are going to talk about low back pain today uh it's gonna we're gonna talk about a lot of different topics in regards to low back pain might get a little rambly so uh, hopefully it's useful to you but let's start talking about the prevalence of low back pain so worldwide, there's this global um, uh, disease burden study, basically looking at basically most of most of the developed world um, and even parts of the non-developed world in regards to a variety of diseases and what things uh, cause mortality and what things cause disability and what the cost to societies, m- many societies are with various uh, issues. And what they basically found was that low back pain was the single largest cause of disability in the world. Um, not necessarily mortality, it doesn't, low back pain doesn't kill people, but of disability um, as measured by like work loss or people being unable to do things they wanted to do, uh, various measures of that. And so low back pain, single largest cause of disability in the world. At any given time, 9.4% of the world's population is suffering from low back pain. So right now in the second, almost 10% of the world's population is suffering from low back pain. The lowest prevalence of low back pain in the world is actually uh, women in the Caribbean. Only 6% of them at any given point really have low back pain. The highest prevalence in the world of low back pain is in North African, Middle Eastern men. Around 15.7% of them have low back pain at a given time. So it's not even necessarily, we think like, oh, our society, we sit a lot, in America, in, in kind of Western culture, we sit a lot, we should have the highest incidence of low back pain. And it turns out it's more complicated than that. Like sitting by itself doesn't necessarily give us the highest incidence of low back pain because um, it, it like we're, we're up there for sure, but we're not the single peak of, of where low back pain is most prevalent. So I wanna start basically by talking a little bit about pain and we've done this before, but in regards to low back pain and then why people might start to experience this. So why sitting might be an issue, why people hurt themselves lifting, um, all these other things. So basically what we're gonna talk about for a second is this biopsychosocial model of low back pain um, and kind of the history of how we got to this and then how it, how it applies to low back pain. So for a long time, for the last, uh, I don't even know, for however long medical science has been around, we've basically use this kinesiopathological model of pain in which we think that pain is directly related to tissue damage or some sort of uh, abnormality of the tissues. And so we have a lot of different ways of trying to figure out why this is going on. We have x-rays, we have MRIs, we have people that sit there with their fingers trying to palpate stuff. Um, When people get all these uh, images done and they don't have some sort of structural abnormality but still have low back pain, we don't really know what to do with them. And um, a lot of the, like there, there have been um, 
things that people have pain with that they were basically told they were faking because, hey, we can't find something on an MRI, we can't find something on an X-ray. So it turns out pain is more complicated than that because there are other factors besides just tissue abnormalities that come in. So if we think of pain as more of this warning signal, this alert saying like, hey, you, you shouldn't be doing this thing you're doing, your brain creates it to try and protect you from damaging yourself doing, doing something. And so if your brain perceives something to be as a threat, something to be a threat, then your brain is going to create pain to make you basically not want to do it. And so you get, you do get signals from your body telling your brain what, what your body is doing. You get, um, these nociceptive signals that basically detect temperature, chemical and mechanical change saying something is changing. You need to pay attention to this. None of these are pain signals. We don't get pain signals from our body. We get, signals from our body telling us what are what's happening in our body and then our brain takes those and interprets those signals and decides okay we're gonna we're gonna um de determine this to be a threat we're gonna determine this to not be a threat and if the brain decides something is a threat it creates pain to make you stop and so that that broadens basically where we can think of how we think of low back pain and like what might cause low back pain so Somebody that can deadlift like five to 600 pounds but sits in an office chair all day might get low back pain sitting in an office chair, but they might not get low back pain deadlifting or vice versa, right? And so what might be happening here is that this constant low load when someone is sitting, um, it puts a little bit of load on some of the tissues in your low back, but it's a long period of time. And so eventually you get these nociceptive signals that are saying, hey, there's some sort of mechanical change or there's there's been this constant mechanical pressure on these tissues and you should probably move so that you don't um, like cut off blood flow or create damage to these tissues long-term with this constant low load. Your brain receives those signals and when it starts receiving enough of those and it starts to pay attention to what's happening in your low back, your brain says, okay, I'm gonna create a little bit of discomfort to make you move. And if you don't pay attention to that and you just sit there anyway for six hours, then eventually those, those nociceptive signals more and more start happening. Maybe you do create a little bit of tissue damage, so you start getting other nociceptive signals that detect the chemical change of, of an inflammatory response. And so your brain starts paying more and more attention to that, and eventually it might start to create pain. And then once your brain starts paying attention to your low back when you're sitting, the next time you sit, your brain is gonna have a lower threshold for where it decides to create pain. So you, maybe you sat for six hours a day for three weeks and then you start to develop a little bit of low back pain and now you can only sit for like three hours a day before your back starts to hurt. And so that's because your brain has become more sensitive to the stimulus and saying, all right, I'm gonna start creating pain a little bit earlier so that you stop before we get to the point of actual tissue damage. And so that, that can happen with any activity. That can happen with sitting, that can happen with lifting, that can happen with walking, with running. Um, basically anything where you are putting enough stress through the tissues where your brain becomes concerned about it. And so we talked a little bit about this last month and the month before with running, but with any sort of activity, it's really important to progress slowly into it so that you don't, you don't damage your tissues, right? And so you don't wanna necessarily kick off enough nociceptive signaling for your brain to perceive something as a threat. And so the way we do that is just slowly ramping up what we're doing over time and creating more tissue capacity and not ramping up so quickly that we overwhelm tissue capacity and not ramping up so quickly that we, we trigger that threat response in your brain where your brain says, hey, this is too much and creates pain. And so you can actually, you can, you can uh, condition yourself to sit for longer. You can condition yourself to ride on a bike for longer if you're, if you're a triathlete and you have low back pain. Um, all these things, but if you go into it too quickly, that's gonna, that's gonna be where you start to get this pain from. So kind of circling back around to this history of the biopsychosocial model from the kinesiopathological model and how it relates to low back pain. Um, it's kind of interesting actually, if you look into the history of low back pain treatment in the 
the, the kind of the beginning of what we think of more as modern treatment style. Um, in the early 19th century, this um, Swedish guy named Per Henrik Ling developed an exercise program for injured patients. And so at that point, athletes actually didn't necessarily like exercise to build muscle or exercise to lift weights. They only used this strength, these strength routines for injured people to get them back from injury. And then they would kind of play their sport or do whatever activity they wanted to do. And so he invented Swedish gymnastics. Um, and then some of his, uh, some further guys beyond that developed Swedish massage and these other techniques. So what he basically did was um, he started using uh, progressive resistance training, except the resistance was provided by the physiotherapist. And so like he would sit there, if you had a knee injury, he would like push against your leg and you would push against him and you would do knee extensions against the physical therapist. And then, you know, knee flexion, like hamstring curls for low back, he would have, he would like push on your torso and you would try and extend your spine, that kind of thing. And so it was pretty exhausting for the physiotherapist at that point. They probably got pretty jacked. Um, but that was kind of the beginning of, of basically exercise for, for uh, injuries. And so from 1857 to 1920, a second physician, a Swedish physician named Gustav Zander, um, started to build exercise machines to be able to standardize the resistance that, that patients were using. So with a physical therapist, it's like, hey, I don't know how hard I'm pushing. By the end of the day, I'm getting really, really tired, so my patients aren't getting as much resistance. So he built these exercise machines. And we kind of think of uh, this guy named Arthur Jones to be the inventor of uh, these Nautilus machines where you see in, in most gyms that are they're based off these Nautilus machines, you know, knee extension, lumbar extension, you're doing bench press, all that kind of stuff on machines. These were actually invented, um, a, a good amount of them were actually invented by this guy, Gustav Zander, separately from Arthur Jones. And Arthur Jones didn't actually know he existed, so it's not like he stole ideas, but they were much later on. So the Swedish guy invented these machines and basically started using those as strength trained people. Um, so, Resistance training started to become more popular in regards to injuries and just in regards to athletic performance. Um, in the 1940s, these two scientists, DeLorme and Watkins, if you've ever taken an exercise science class or if any PT school students are watching this, you've probably heard of these guys, they introduced their progressive resistance exercise program. And so we kind of give them credit for progression, this uh, progress, progressive resistance idea, in that when you do something, you have to do more the next time, the more the, more the next time to create this adaptation over time. Um, they controlled for intensity, volume, and frequency. Um, intensity being the, the heaviness of the weight basically compared to the one at max. Uh, they were proponents of isolating the lumbar spine um, separately from the pelvis. So they would basically like strap people in and kind of make it so the pelvis couldn't move to this contraption they built and then have people round their back, um, go into the lumbar extension and flexion and strengthen people that way. Um, in, the, in 1958, Another scientist named uh, Flint uh, published the first study on high-intensity resistance exercise for low back pain. So this is really getting more into the modern, like what we think of as normal normal research, like we have our introduction, methods, results, conclusion, all that kind of stuff. Um, and they did basically two sets of a 10 rep max trunk flexion and one set of a 10 rep max trunk extension. So basically curl up, so what we think of like more as an ab exercise, two sets of 10 with enough weight to fatigue at 10, and then one set of 10 of lumbar extension, which would be the opposite direction, kind of round, coming from a rounded back up to a straight back with a 10 rep max as heavy as they could for one set per week. 58% um, of their low back pain patients experienced complete relief, 31 experienced 31% experienced partial relief and only 11% experienced no pain relief. So as early as 1958 in our, in our kind of modern literature base, we have this um, basically like people 
getting better when they strength train their back, when they make the tissues in the area stronger. And we'll talk a little bit about how that plays into not necessarily the kinesiopathological model, but the whole biopsychosocial model. Um, and then unfortunately around the early 1970s, um, and this is just human nature, like we want a quick fix, we want something we don't have to necessarily apply effort to, we want people to fix us we started to devolve more into passive treatment modalities. So things that were done to patients versus patients taking control of themselves and doing strength training and that kind of thing. So surgeries became a lot more common for the low back. Um, we started to develop uh, this whole system of manual therapy, um, which most physical therapy students still spend a good chunk of their physical therapy school time on. Um, we started to develop electrical stimulation, uh, all, the, all this weird stuff, ultrasound, uh, what's the uh, ionto, iontophoresis? Um, there's some there's some really weird modalities that people started to come up with, and at about that point we started to realize like, hey, low back pain is a really big issue and it's it's messing with a lot of people and we don't really know how to treat it. So from the 70s up until probably the early 2000s or even. Um, like 2010 or so, we had a really hard time treating low back pain. We, we would do surgeries and it was like a 50-50 chance if it would help. People would go to physical therapy for 12 weeks and have no pain relief, it was, it was really hit or miss. Um, and this was also magnified by, at least in the physical therapy realm, of physical therapists being able to bill a lot of money for very basic passive modalities. So people could come in and a physical therapist could put an ice pack on them and they would be reimbursed a lot of money by insurance companies for, for doing this like basic, really easy stuff that doesn't do anything. Um, and so just, just human nature wise, you know, you could have five, five patients come in per hour, you could throw some e-stim and ice on them for, for half an hour and you could like have them do, you know, some traction on top of that and some, some ultrasound on top of that and basically not have to really work and you would get reimbursed a lot of money. And, you know, that is, that is a little bit unethical and I don't want to necessarily like, you know, call people out too hard on that. But what we basically have at this point is we know none of those things provide long-term relief and insurance companies have caught onto that and they've stopped reimbursing, at least for ice packs. But a lot of, a lot of places still do this kind of treatment modality where you come in and half the time you're in the physical therapy office, half the time you're in the doctor's office, you're getting passive things done to you. And none of these things have create long-term relief for patients. They, f they might feel good at the time, but they don't necessarily create change, um, physiological change or nervous system change that lasts. And so finally, more recently in the last decade, strength training has started to become kind of a bigger thing again. And I, even when I was in physical therapy school, I think it was 2000, I'll say 2014 or 2015, a study came out where they looked at deadlifts for low back pain as if it was some sort of magical, like, oh wow, this is a brand new thing, you know? Um, can patients, can low back pain patients benefit from deadlifts? And they like broke it down by like, there are very specific patients that deadlifts work for and, and we need to only target deadlifts to those patients and trying to break people into these kind of different categories of low back pain that may or may not necessarily be that, that valid. And so, um, Basically, what it turned out is that people with a low amount of fear tended to benefit more from, from deadlift programs in this one study. Since then, we actually have a lot more strengthening studies that have come out, and it turns out that general exercise, even if it's not necessarily strengthening, is one of the most potent ways to deal with low back pain um, that, that we have just in general. And so other guidelines have come out, and what we're starting to move towards, and it'll probably take the next 10 to 20 years to really cement this into treatment, how, how we treat low back pain, but 
we that there are guidelines for imaging now, right? So we don't necessarily need to get imaging for every instance of low back pain again, because like there may not be an issue in the low back that you'd see on imaging. There may be abnormalities on imaging that aren't contributing to low back pain because the brain's not perceiving them to be a threat and they may not actually be a threat. And so if we're if we're not worried about something like cauda equina syndrome, where you have a disc herniation directly into your low, low back and it's creating numbness in both your legs, if we're not worried about a tumor, we're not worried about infection and we're not worried about fracture, imaging probably shouldn't be done. If it's um, someone that just comes in with like general low back and hey, I was, I was deadlifting and now my back hurts or I was deadlifting and like one of my legs hurt, that kind of thing. And we aren't worried about the central disc protrusion that's creating cauda equina syndrome because we don't have bilateral symptoms probably don't need imaging for that. Those things recover. And so we have a lot of actually optimistic research coming out at this point showing that um, intervertebral discs heal on their own about 60 to 70% of the time, right around like 66.66% of the time actually, almost exactly two thirds of the time. Um, there are some things that make a disc less likely to heal and this would be uh, issues with uh, the cartilaginous plates around the disc. So your intervertebral disc sits in between your vertebra here and your vertebra here, and it kind of allows you to create more motion. It works with force absorption through your, through your spine. But if you have lived a life where your bones aren't necessarily super healthy and you haven't moved a lot, then the cartilage starts to degenerate um, on each of those vertebra that are around the vertebral disc, intervertebral disc. And the cartilage is basically how you get nutrients in and out of that disc. And so if you can't get nutrients in and out of the disc, then the disc is less likely to be able to heal. It can't adapt because it doesn't get the building blocks even if you provide a stimulus for it to adapt. And so the disc is less likely to heal, but still around 50% of discs with people with these changes, which are called motive changes, not really important, about 50% of those discs still heal on their own. So about half the time, even if you're really, like your, your back is really, really, really weak, um, your intervertebral disc, if you have a disc herniation, still heals on its own. We have other, uh, cool things at this point, looking at the adapti adaptability of intervertebral discs. So we know now that, um, in a, sense, a lot of these are in animal models, so we use rat rat tails because uh, they're fairly similar to human, human uh, vertebra. Um, but if we apply the right type of force, we apply the right type of stimulus, um, we get anabolic signaling, which means the intervertebral disc there's, there are molecular mechanisms in it that start to signal that may try and make the disc stronger. Um, as, of, as of right now, there's only one study looking at humans basically trying to see if we apply the right exercises if intervertebral discs do adapt to exercise in humans. Um, it was a six-month study, and basically they, they had people do deadlifts. They had people run, and we'll talk about running here in a second. Um, and, they, and it was actually a pretty well well uh, thought out program. I um, they didn't put it directly in the study, but I emailed the authors and they sent me their whole protocol. And it was it was a really decent strength program. Um, unfortunately, on the MRIs they took pre and post, it didn't look like anything actually happened to the discs. The discs didn't get thicker and stronger over a six month period. Um, that could have been due to limitations of what we can see on an MRI. That could have been that discs take longer than six months to adapt to to heavy strength training. Um, there are a few other things that they thought might be happening that maybe uh, there, there was a really, really low uh, compliance rate with the exercising. These people were like running a few times a week and they were supposed to be lifting at least two to three times a week, that kind of thing. And so compliance rates were only around 58% to 60% for this whole group. Um, so it, it wasn't a perfect study, but it's the first study we have looking at that and it's a really cool idea. And it's kind of 
honestly how we do a lot of our treatment at Made to Move is trying to make people stronger because we do believe that, that things can adapt to this. So on a molecular scale, we have evidence that discs can adapt. We just haven't quite seen that because there's only one study with some limitations looking at discs able to adapt, like on a, on a big scale, macro scale, discs being able to adapt. So what we've really come around to now at this point is from this kinesiopathological model of like there's a physical reason for the pain, we come over to this biopsychosocial model of physical things can contribute, but your brain has to decide whether or not they're a threat in order to have pain. And one of the best ways to get out of that is to convince your brain things aren't a threat by making the area very, very strong and then exposing you to graded activity, exposing your brain to this activity in a non-threatening way so that your brain desensitizes to it. Um, on top of that, we have uh, some other evidence that shows that um, runners actually have better intervertebral disc health than non-runners. So there's a study looking at uh, recreational runners between, um, I think it's just recreational runners in general actually, but basically these people, these runners have better disc height and uh, better disc composition and um, less, less degenerative issues than people their own age who don't run or who are sedentary. Um, and so the, the running may actually be a very uh, specific kind of stimulus that helps the intervertebral discs adapt to load and to get stronger. And this isn't, this isn't a longitudinal study where they had people not run and then start to run. This is just a cross-section of like, here are some runners, here are some non-runners, let's look at their discs. And the runners tend to have better discs. So it's not necessarily looking at cause and effect, but we can probably say like, hey, if the runners have better disc health, maybe this is something we might want to apply to people. Um, this also happens in... Uh, endurance cyclists. So endurance cyclists have, again, better disc height and better disc health than non-cyclists. And they're in this kind of flexed position for hours and hours at a time where their low back is rounded. And it's probably because they're applying this, this force to their discs and their discs have to adapt to it and get stronger. Um, interestingly, endurance cyclists also have a higher incidence of low back pain, even though their, their back looks better on imaging than people who don't do that. And so that kind of points that biopsychosocial model of they put enough stress through their back, their brain might start to interpret it as a threat, even though they're not necessarily creating tissue damage. They're actually creating tissue, uh, tissue adaptation that gets stronger. And so those people might benefit from a few accessory movements to try and help desensitize their brain and maybe strengthen some other things that aren't just passive tissues like the, the muscles in the low back. Um, so let's move on from that. Um, Let's talk about modalities for a second and how they might fit into the biopsychosocial model of pain. So all these passive modalities that I was ragging on earlier, like, you know, the ice, the e-stim, um, heat, all that kind of stuff, manual therapy, um, I do a lot of dry needling. Um, all these things, basically what we found in the research is they don't create long-term change, they create short-term nervous system desensitization. So when you Apply a stimulus to a part of your body that hurts, basically. You're, what, what, when it hurts, it means your brain is paying a lot of attention to that area. So I push on your back, your back hurts right there. What that means is your brain is interpreting the stimulus of my hand pushing on it as a threat, and your brain says, okay, I don't like the amount of force going through that, I don't like that stimulus, I'm gonna create pain to try and get you to make it stop. And so that means your brain is paying a lot of attention there. So what we wanna do, if we wanna temporarily desensitize it and make your brain less protective of that area, because logically speaking, me pushing with my my fingers on your back can't damage your back. Like it would take a lot more force than that, but it's being interpreted as painful. So we probably want your brain to be a little less sensitive, but we apply um, either a novel or a noxious stimulus to that area. And so again, that can be massage, that can be 
uh, cupping, that can be the e-stim, that can be heat, that can be ice, that can be dry needling, and it basically makes your brain pay less attention to future stimuli coming from that area. It kind of hits a reset button where your brain becomes more, uh, that it gets closer to the sensitivity it should be at so that you can live a normal life versus the sensitivity of, hey, I think there's an injury here. And so it kind of bumps that threshold for where we feel pain up a little closer to where it's supposed to be. It's not, it's none of these things are strong enough stimulus necessarily to make it so that you can push through like a severe injury. So if there is severe tissue damage, it might make it feel better. And then if you do something that aggravates that tissue, you're gonna get a whole flood of nociceptive signals up to your brain saying, hey, there's a big mechanical or chemical change again, and your brain's gonna recreate that threat response again. But if it's just something small, it's just hypersensitivity, or it's this chronic low back pain where you can go and get an MRI and there's not really anything wrong with your back, but you have this like, it flares up and it goes away and it flares up and it goes away over the course of a few years, then this could be something that makes your brain pay less attention to it in the short term, and then we can get a little bit, uh, we can progress the exercise that we need to do a little bit more quickly in order to make your uh, brain desensitize in order to make the tissue stronger so that your brain doesn't have to worry about it as much. Um, and so modalities can be useful, but they probably shouldn't be the main focus of any treatment and eventually they shouldn't have to be used at all. So if all we're doing is manipulating or adjusting things, if, we're cra if all we're doing is cracking your spine, if all we're doing is these things that are being done to you and you're not applying enough of a stimulus through your body to actually make the area stronger, then you're not necessarily creating long-term change and you're probably gonna have to continue to use that modality forever and it'll eventually not be as effective most likely as it was at the start of it. Um, so to kind of conclude this whole low back spiel here, um, modalities can be useful in the short term. They can help desensitize uh, tissues temporarily. This can be self-management at home. You can use your own heat pack. You can use your own ice pad. Um, you can uh, use a foam roller at home, all those things. If it's not enough, you can come to see a physical therapist. We can do more intense things like dry needling, um, or we can advise you on how to use your own modalities. Uh, that's temporary desensitization. And then the long-term fix is going to be um, doing activity, doing some sort of exercise that convinces your brain it doesn't need to worry as much about your low back. Um, partially because you're doing it in a non-threatening manner and partially because the tissues in your low back are getting stronger and so your brain doesn't have to worry about anything damaging them as much. So this can be a lot of different activities. This can, when you look at the research on what kind of exercise, uh, exercise modalities work best for low back pain, there's, there's a pretty broad variety to choose from. Um, I have a bias towards strength training. I think that does create increased tissue capacity better than better than most other exercise modalities, but there's evidence for yoga, there's evidence for Pilates, there's evidence for even just like motor core control stuff, the traditional like bird dog thing and PTs that PT offices do. Um, with, the, with the strength training, basically you just wanna do something that your brain isn't necessarily creating more than a three out of 10 pain. So dull ache is okay, you don't want elevated levels of pain for more than 24 hours after, and then slowly progress that. So you can't just do the same thing over and over, you have to progress it over time to make things stronger. Slow progression though. If you're already lifting and your low back is already strong, if you're someone who deadlifts you know, 700 pounds and now you have low back pain, then what that might mean is that you over, either overwhelm the capacity of the tissues, your training volume got too high, you um, didn't recover well enough, there's other factors in your life like you, you didn't sleep well, your stress level was high, it's something that triggered a threat response by your brain. And so once your brain has that threat response going, we need to 
do things that convince your brain that it's okay to move the area. And, and we need to, if there is actual tissue damage, we need to let that heal, but that doesn't mean doing nothing. And so this, this kind of, this is actually a big issue and there's research looking at runners with this and a few other sports. I don't know that there's much research looking at power lifters or crossfitters, but when people hurt themselves, um, doing an activity that they like doing, they tend to not replace that with other activities. So they usually just stop. And this is a really classic thing with powerlifters that I've seen is like, oh, I hurt my back deadlifting, so I stopped deadlifting for six, I stopped lifting with my lower body for six months, and then I started getting back into it. And that doesn't necessarily help anything. That um, it feels better because now you're not putting stress through the area, and your brain isn't getting that stress that creates that threat response, but the tissues get weak. And then when you go back to it, that, that same issue might pop back up. Your brain didn't desensitize anything because you never put a stimulus in for your brain to desensitize too. And so if deadlifts bug you, <clears throat> say just taking deadlifts as an example, if deadlifts hurt your low back, we have a few different options. We can go, we can put a, a, a low enough stimulus that it doesn't create pain, um, which might be a very light deadlift that might not actually be enough to increase tissue capacity. And so we might need to add in other things like back extensions or even just static holds, um, something for your low back, or you could foam roll in between sets just to help desensitize it, but something for your low back to continue being strong, even if the deadlifting itself isn't something that you, you can do. So replacing your limited activity that you can't do anymore, that you are getting that threat response with, with something else is probably going to be one of the most important things, not just stopping. And that applies to... That applies to runners, powerlifters, crossfitters, everything is let's train around it. Let's do something else that doesn't create that threat response in order to keep those tissues strong. And that's again, where if you don't have ideas for that, if you need help with that, or a good physical therapist more, or even a good personal trainer might come in to help you come up with those, those kinds of things. So. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us on the healthy Charleston podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, we would love for you to head over to Instagram, search Healthy Charleston, one word, like, follow, comment on today's episode. If you have any questions, comments, if you have possible guests that you want us to bring on, if you have any topics you want us to discuss, reach out there, send us a direct message. We would love some feedback. Also, if you get any extra time, head over to iTunes, give us a rating. Again, put comments there. We love your feedback. Have a phenomenal.